In our first interview, Professor Pornish, we covered your early life in South Australia, which includes your studies at the University of Adelaide. After that, you came across to the United Kingdom, where you obtained your BCL at Oxford. Perhaps in the, your second interview today, we can start with your academic career. In 1962, you were appointed to an assistant lectureship at LSE. Yes, as I think I mentioned at the end of the first interview, uh, I was extremely pleased to get that job, having made rather a fool of myself in the interview, I thought. Anyway, they took me. And that was, of course, on the basis typical of those days that you had three years of initiatory teaching as an assistant lecturer and then you became a full lecturer and that was a life of life to, to pensionable age appointment. So that's where I really got going. Any particular uh, colleagues who stood out from that period? Oh, it was a fine <coughs> law school at the London School of Economics. It really was. Names who come to mind still are First of all, the two great public lawyers, Professor John Griffith, the uh, great authority on the operations of the politico-legal system under which we are governed, what counts as a constitution, and a very critical one. And Professor Stanley De Smith, who afterwards became the uh, Downing Chair for a short while before his early death in this university. Um, and he was absolutely in the forefront of the generation of new ideas about what administrative law could be. His great book was entitled Judicial Review of Administrative Action. On other sides, there was first of all Professor Ash Wheatcroft, who had been all sorts of things, including a Chancery Master before he came to the LSE as a professor. His real love and interest was in the law of taxation, and he established a whole following of younger scholars who would most of them go and work in tax matters at the bar afterwards. And they broadened the field of what could be studied in relation to tax taxation enormously because very little had been done in the law schools uh, of this country until that time. And he had many contacts, which of course made it possible to see what tax law was really like and how it was a game you played with Her Majesty's Commissioners of Revenue rather than hard law which had to be applied. Um, other names, Professor Jim Garr was famous for establishing a new critical style of approach to company law above all. Um, but he was just leaving to go and become the leader, the uh, professor in the University of Lagos's new law school, because he had that sort of commitment in, in his life as well, and went on to be vice chancellor of Southampton, one of the first law commissioners, and so forth. And Professor Bill Wedderburn, afterwards Lord Le uh, Wedderburn of Deptford, I think. Yes. Um, who became famous as a, uh, a labor lawyer, but also as a corporate lawyer. And he in fact held the chair of commercial law, the castle chair at the LSE in the footsteps of great forebears in, of whom the last was Gower. 
And thinking again, there was Professor Toby Milson, is all well well known in this series of uh, accounts of people, um, a very fine legal his historian, who was there as the professor of legal history uh, during the period when his writing really reached the highest point and the widest audience with his book, The Historical Foundations of the Common Law, and uh, was therefore a, a fine, fine individual to be working with. So names like these come to mind. It was a, a strong law school, and what's more, for the most part, it was looking to do new things in legal education, right. to make it more socially aware, to make it more easily criticized and not just the learning of the black letter. Uh, and that was going on very much in my first years there. There were all sorts of radical thoughts like splitting up what the law of property had always been, which was the law of land, and associating it with torts such as the tort of conversion and trespass and so forth. All sorts of things you could do that would be new and one would hope would be more relevant to students aged, undergraduate students aged much uh, for, for the large part, uh, between 18 and 21. There were also LLM courses beginning to blossom, and they, interestingly, were run not on the basis of each separate law school that taught in the University of London law, but on a federated system so that students could come to any one of the four or five colleges that did law and take subjects from all around the university. It was just a rule that you have to take two at the college with which you were associated out of four subjects. Fascinating. So uh, during this time of this Cornish, you, you actually went, you were called to the bar as well. Yes. So it seems as though you had a very hectic schedule. Yes. Uh, calling calling the bar meant, first of all, passing what was then part two of the bar exams, and then going on to do a pupillage in Barristers' Chambers. And after a year or so of that, you would qualify to practice as a barrister. Fairly primitive, primitive by today's standards of getting into the bar, but certainly easier then in the 1960s than it would become later. Did you ever practice? I practiced part-time particularly when I got my own subjects settled and intellectual property was one of them. Um, and particularly when it became a Europeanized subject and not something that was necessarily well known to uh, people who practiced in that area. So I did, did some, some of that work, but it was never a major commitment of mine beside teaching and research. So during this period, you were there in the late 60s. This was generally a period of student unrest worldwide. It certainly was. Do you have any specific recollections of this at, at NSE? Yes, certainly, because <laughs> of the various places which first became inflamed. The west coast of the United States, Paris and surroundings, Frankfurt and, and uh, 
Freiburg in, in Germany as well as Berlin. These things steamed up. We all knew the names of Danny Blanca's Cohen, Danny the Red. And they had their day of saying universities run on the old systems of grand professors dictating to, to crowds of eager students must be over and students must control what was taught um, and say when people were good enough and so forth. It was high-flying days. At the LSE, it became a particular point of um, explosion. First of all, two years, about 1966, before most of the university trouble began, because the president of the Students' Union at LSE wrote a critical letter about education policy to the well, Times, I think, uh, on school notepaper, LSE notepaper. And the then crusty old director of the school, Sir Sidney Kane, said that was not proper. His permission had not been granted. That led to quite some demonstrations, all peaceable. And students of the LSE began to get the idea. This was a time for new things. And in 1968, by which time the director had become Sir Walter Adams, uh, a man who had been vice chancellor of the University of Rhodesia and had been heavily criti criticized for his running of the establishment by an investigation and report by no one less than Sir Robert Burley, ex-headmaster of Eton. Um, so that did him not much good and the students turned on him and said he was not a respectable person to be directing the LSE. This led to frights within the administration. The building of the LSE um, was just a concrete block of the 1930s with a central staircase going up it. So the bursary, the, the bursar's office, erected cages or gates on the stairwell as it wound round a lift and gave the excuse that this was, the insurance company had demanded this because on the fourth floor there were some valuable pictures that had been given to the school. This was very infuriating indeed and a great crowd rushed and pulled down the gates. There had to be disciplinary action after that and you can imagine the kind of fuss that went on in every direction in, in the reserve. In the end, there was something like a trial court on which Sir William Wade of this university was one of the tribunal members and they du duly uh, punished both a member of staff from the sociology department by requiring his resignation and levying fines and so forth on students who had taken part in this rabble-rousing occasion. But gradually, of course, it settled back. And in the 1970s, students became much more concerned again about what they were doing a university degree for and where it would lead in a world where jobs were not necessarily there for the professional and commercial classes to walk into. Very interesting. Yes. Uh, so that, that was going on in 68-69. And I have to say that it was just the period when I was moving college, uh, so I escaped the worst of it personally. I didn't have to attend too many enormous meetings. 
of high political content. Because I went as a reader to Queen Mary College. In 1969? Yes. And this was just for one year, and I wondered what prompted this move. Was it the promotion, presumably, yes. through readership? Yes, it, it was, yes. And that was, a, that was the aim of that. Yes. And in fact, I went on teaching much the same subjects as I had been teaching at the LSE, particularly in the graduate LLM programme. And uh, I did quite a lot of it still at the LSE because of the intercollegiate relationship. And... Uh, that was very satisfactory to me. I'm not sure that Queen Mary College got real value out of me in this, yeah. in this dodgy debate that went on. Any, anyone whom you recall from that time at Queen Mary? Queen Mary was a new, new law school. It had started in 1965 under Professor Crane, who previously had been at King's College London. Um, and so that was some excitement in it. There were young lecturers there in particular who were clearly destined for great things. One I think of is Lord Grabener, now the Master of Clare College in this university, who's come recently after a highly successful career at the bar and in more generally in political matters in, during the years of the Blair and then Brown governments. Uh, so he was a very distinguished figure. I think we were more breeding new people than relying on people who had been teaching for 20 or 30 years at that stage. But it's a good place to be. I see. You also managed to fit in a, a sabbatical to Adelaide. And as I understand, you perhaps arranged that prior to your appointment. Yes, I, thinking back on it, I uh, went to Adelaide in the Northern Hemisphere autumn. Uh, of 1968 uh, on sabbatical leave from the LSE and then came back and started at Queen Mary and everybody was ready to accept that as an arrangement which had to be made rather rapidly. It must have been quite nice for you, Professor Cornish, to have that opportunity to go back to Adelaide. My old law school? Yes. yes of course it was. Yes. Because it seemed uh, a very different world. Yes. Yes, it still did. Mm -hmm. yes. That's right. Though Australia in the 60s was building education in much the same style as was happening here after the Robbins report. They were becoming much larger, large proportions of students would stay on to go to university. So, not dissimilar. Yeah. Well, you were. You didn't stay in your leadership for very long before mm. you were awarded a chair at LSE. Yes. And that was in 1917. You were only 33 years old. That's uh, true. Yes. Can you, that's quite a young age for a, such an elevated position. Do you recall the circumstances of this appointment? Oh, yeah. The main circumstances were that the LSE was in a, in a terrible mess after the Troubles. And they, could, they couldn't, I think, find anybody who might have been my senior by 15 to 20 years, which would have been more appropriate. There was a bit of a scrabble around to find someone, frankly. And when I got there, I was asked immediately if I'd like to be the uh, pro-director of the school, because, again, the administration had been badly mauled in all the troubles with students, and they were trying to rebuild themselves. They didn't really get 
back into a normal stream until they were able to appoint Ralph Dahrendorf, the German politician and sociologist, uh, as director of the school. And that really made a huge difference across here as an international known figure who'd been in, in coalition governments in, in Germany as a liberal. While you were at, during this period, you had a 20 year stint in this position, you introduced for the first time in the UK the teaching of intellectual property as a course. And I wonder if you can explain a bit about the background leading up to this. Yes, the background's really quite, quite delightful. Um, Germany has long treated the establishment of patent rights for inventions, copyright in literary and artistic works, the protection of trademarks, which are all aspects of what we now call intellectual property. And they tended, they tended to have in their capital city uh, universities which taught this subject because that's where the practitioners of it also worked. And these, these professors were often practicing lawyers who just delivered lectures. And that was typical around so much of the globe, South America, um, much of the continent uh, before, before the Second World War. Uh, so there was the United Kingdom really lacking this whole tradition. It wasn't thought of as anything other than a, uh, a subject with strong practical implications. It brought a lot of money in certain fields to people of independent mind, really, who would write or would invent. And uh, at the LSE, there was the famous professor, ultimately Sir Otto Kahnfreund, an enormously distinguished man who I didn't mention before, but was probably the greatest of them all at, at that time. Because he saw in all German universities that there was a professor of intellectual property, and he thought something should be done. So he invited from the bar the one man there who wrote independently and critically about the evolution of intellectual property rights, particularly in his book, which is entitled Patents for Inventions and Registered Designs, and went through several editions, gradually becoming more popular in place of older, boring textbooks, which didn't give much away in the practical arts. Um, so Mr. he invited Mr. Blanco White, the gentleman who had written critically on the subject, to come and give some uh, extra lectures on intellectual property. And they were advertised, and nobody came deeply embarrassed because they weren't tied to anything that you had to qualify in. So after that, they looked around for some suspect in the teaching staff who could take it up as a, a regular subject. So I actually started to do that a, by having a pupillage at the bar with, with Mr. Blanco White, and also finding others who could, together with me, teach it as a subject in the LLM. So that was actually happening before I went down to Green Mary College for my two years there. Right. And uh, 
that was fine. That's how the course got going. And these were exciting times where changes were actually happening to intellectual property law, just the beginnings of the great flood we've had since. Um, and we got going to a flying start. One of my co-helpers was the now Sir Robin Jacob, um, who'd been, first of all, had first taken a physics degree at Trinity College, Cambridge, but then came to London and uh, took the evening course in law, undergraduate law, that was available at the LSE. And there I taught him other subjects and we got on well. And he was quickly acquiring his intellectual property skills at the bar. And together we and a very clever patent agent called Richard Lloyd put on this first course and maintained it together uh, for four or five years before they drifted off into, into practice. Um, could take up, could take up by the students? Yes, this. yes, yes. Or, or is more. But the big next step in teaching it around Britain was to introduce it as an undergraduate subject as well as an LLM subject because very few universities then had an established LLM program. Much of the demand would come from increasing numbers of foreigners com coming into Britain and wanting to do it. And I maintained it there until, until I left to come to Cambridge in 1990 some help from various people um, and good fun it was. So you mentioned um, Professor Otto Kahn-Freund. Yes. Any other notable people whom you recall? Did you ever perhaps cross paths with Dame Rosalind Higgins as she is now? Oh, Rosalind, yes, of course. Um, I think I helped appoint her. She, she came to the, the LSE uh, as Professor of International Law in 1981 or 1982, I can't remember exactly, um, and was obviously a high-flying candidate. She had written quite a lot, but had had her children and hadn't talked through that period. Um, so was coming back into full-time academic life. She made the mo most of it. She was a very um, charismatic figure who would go on in the end to be president of the International Court of Justice in The Hague. So there's quality for you. Yes. Remarkable trajectory. Yep. In yep. any other names, Professor Cornish, that you recall? Uh, sort of LSE in the 70s. So that's the period we're concentrating on at the moment. Well, 70 to 90, essentially, in, Whilst in, I was in the chair. stint. Yes. Um, Certainly interesting things were happening. Um, two young professors or, or um, rising professors who wrote uh, strikingly in ways that the legal practice did not necessarily, or the ju judiciary did not necessarily appreciate, were Tim Murphy and Richard Rawlings. Richard is still a professor at, at University College London and a very distinguished scholar, and they wrote a, an article on the low grade of reasoning by judges in the House of Lords, the senior court of the time. And their 
analysis was, was less than flattering. You know, I could all turn on, that seemed reasonable to me. I couldn't go beyond that sometimes, fearing to be classed as political judges who had taken a particular position in real life. Yes. So that's an example. Um, and there was much more give and take in those days uh, at the OSE than probably is now, but I've done no calculation on that. Um, it was a lively place to be and much more peaceful by the middle 1970s than it had been in the middle 1960s. Where did we go from in, there? In 1984, I can just uh, yes. remind you, Professor Cornish, you, uh, you probably won't mention it yourself, so I remind you that you um, became a fellow of the British Academy. Oh, yes. Um, mm -hmm. uh, what did this, Why? Well, uh, what did this involve? It was mainly because I had by then produced a first textbook, mainly for students, on the law of intellectual property in this country. And that hadn't been done before. And the rest of the members of the law section must have thought it was worth giving some sort of prize for. So they admitted me, I think I was 46. Which At the same admission, yeah. 1984, John Baker, now Sir John Baker at this university, um, was also admitted. And he was seven years younger than me. He was admitted for his very substantial contribution already at that age to English legal history across its whole trajectory. During this time you made had several very interesting sabbaticals, overseas trips, yeah. uh, including I think the first one was to the University of British Columbia. That was in uh, you were a special guest lecturer in nineteen seventy three. Yes. Any Nice recollections or? Oh, well, Van Vancouver is a delightful place to be, of course. Um, and a good bunch of people, people teaching there. Um, I can remember giving a public lecture on the jury system and so forth, which went, which went well. Um, of course, they still use it too, sometimes. Uh, and altogether, I got through a lot of lot of work there as well. It was only for three weeks or something. It wasn't a big sympathical. Mm -hmm. I just went away for it. A good, a nice, very yes. productive visit. Yes, um, yes. You had, you were a visiting researcher at the Max Planck Institute in 1979. This was the first of yes. your visits during this period uh, in Munich. Yeah. Specialising in IP competition and taxation. That's what it became a little later, but it, it was certainly intellectual property law. That's why it existed. Um, Munich having become the big IP centre after the Second World War. It used to be Berlin, but they moved the German patent office to Munich after the war. And several very significant figures were associated with it directly, as well as being founders of a Max Planck Institute intellectual property and that was the great step that they took. They treated it very professionally compared with any other European country or even the United States as far as thinking that, that, that the law was very substantial, quite difficult and needed people who 
worked on its basis. The Max Planck Institute was notable for always with these institutes in law, establishing them on a comparative law and international law basis, rather than just the law of the particular country. So they had specialist researchers in different geographical areas. They were even getting into China in those days, and that was remarkable. Uh, didn't exactly fit with Mrs. Mao and her visions of the world, but she passed on. Um, and that was in, I'm looking at That was in 1978, actually. Right, 78. And you then went to uh, went, Monash in 87? Uh, we also went on to Australia in 1979, uh, and that was a good visit as well, but much of what I'd done before. Then 1987, going to Monash. Yes, that was agreeable, six weeks with a man from LSE days at the beginning who had become a great friend, Professor Gerald Dawkin, who had also taken up an interest in intellectual property because he was essentially a tort lawyer. And you can put intellectual property into the tort basket if you want to. So it's great to have him there. And we did a, a seminar which seemed to attract quite a lot of practitioners and was in fact given in the town of Melbourne rather than out in the suburbs at Monash. You had a second, what seems to be a very important appointment to the Max Planck Institute as an external academic member, and that was in 1989. Yes, that was a real honour. On the, At that stage, I don't think any of the other legal um, Max Planck Institutes of which there were about seven men, uh, had foreign, any foreign members at all. Um, so this was an attempt to get someone there who would have, a, have an expertise in the common law systems approach to intellectual property as distinct from the grand civilian uh, attitude which prevailed particularly in Germany rather than in France, which rather ignored the subject for various complicated reasons. But no, for the Germans, it was terribly important. They regarded themselves as the leaders of Europe in this. So you must have gone across and stayed there for a time? Yes, I, there I, for a time. after there, uh, they very kindly um, helped me to find a flat on the borders of the English Garden, which is very delightful in Munich, where the university had a sort of quarter because the part of the students, part of the staff. And that made going there much, much easier and much more pleasant. And sometimes we left the flat to other people from the, from the Institute. And I've always remained a member of it in this category of external um, scholarly, uh, scientific, they like to say, uh, members. Did you enjoy living in Germany, Professor Yes, yes. Well, I didn't have any German when we first started going. So I was 42 when I started learning German. That is not a good idea. It's too taxing and grammatical a language, even though it's spoken comparatively clearly, if the comparison is with French people speaking their own language. So I have some German. Um, and of course, English has become so much more the lingua franca of that sort of technical law 
just as it has even more of the sciences, yes. uh, what we call sciences, natural sciences. Yes. You had a final trip during this period to Hong Kong that was in 1989. Yes. Final visit. Um, anything that stands out from that visit? Well, um, Hong, Hong Kong and its universities, notably the first British university, the University of Hong Kong, uh, in law had built a strong connection with the LSE. Uh, several lecturers, ultimately professors, went out in mid-career and worked there and found it a very pleasant place to live, of course. Um, so I went, first of all, as external examiner to their students, and then on this trip where I had a, a general information visit faculty, but again, quite a short one, and I don't think I did anything particularly striking for me or for them during that, during that visit. I did go to parts of mainland China, which weren't usually visited, at that stage, um, and that, of course, is interesting to see, but very difficult to penetrate. Right, I can imagine. Yeah, I mean, these were the days when Taiwan was completely separate and Hong Kong was the place they all had to travel through in order to do business. So yeah. I was going up on a plane with those sorts of people. Yes. China Airlines, horrible food. <laughs> well, that brings us to 1990 and the end of your time at LSE, as yes. I mentioned earlier, 20 year, a very long period. And I wondered if you could perhaps summarize for us what you feel were your main achievements during this period, this very productive period. Right. <coughs> um, almost from the beginning at the LSE, I became interested in the promotion of new subjects which weren't known in law schools and the LSE being much more generally tending in that direction was a leading establishment where new ideas were being tried out, new, new lines of publication were coming to the fore. As far as I was concerned, I was much influenced by a man who became a great friend Charles Clark, a legal publisher essentially in his earlier years, he then went on to lead um, a couple of British publishing houses uh, as a whole, because he was a leader. He was at Penguin's, Penguin Books, in the, in the second half of the 1960s. And there he promoted with lots of people who we all became friends. Um, a series which he called Law and Society, in which new types of writing, more socially conscious, uh, would be available at a, a level of a general readership, but also students, therefore. And it produces such fine works as Harry Street's um, Freedom, the Individual and the Law, Orion Diamond's um, Consumer law, in effect. What were some of the others? The great LSE one was Bill Wedderburn's The Worker and the Law, which became much chastised by members of the bar who were somewhat more conservatively constructed. Um, 
So the series, it all came out of one meeting in Harmonsworth where penguins were and seemed to get underway. And for that, I wrote my book on the jury system, which was published first in 1968, I think. And uh, at the same time, I was becoming interested in possibilities of bringing in the actual techniques of other social sciences. And out of the jury book, in connection with two social psychologists, we began to try to do replica experiments with groups of people who would function as if they were a jury. For instance, trying to spot what they made in a criminal law case the instructions to be convinced beyond reasonable doubt. What did they make of those words? They're enshrined in the law. Um, and we got grants to do this. It was nevertheless enormously time consuming. We, we ran them tapes of the judge instructing them what had happened in the case. And then we recorded their deliberations and to some extent were able to then analyze the dialogues between members of the jury. Interesting stuff. It was criticized, however, by some people by saying, this is very unrealistic. This is not the jury experience at all. They're in there, they're seeing witnesses, they're, they're there much longer. Uh, they may be afraid to express opinions in an experiment, all these objections. And uh, in the end, we published some articles about our findings, which are quite interesting and sit there. But those criticisms have a certain force, which makes the, the, the work interesting rather than wholly convincing, I would say. Um, and in the end, we all started going in different directions and doing different things. But I'm glad we did it. I had one extraordinary experience. My legal collaborator in this work was Dr. David Thomas, who came here to the Institute of Criminology and became the great authority on sentencing. And David picked up in The Guardian of all places, a comment on someone else's much more recent uh, jury work in the 1990s, in which this man, who was a magistrate in Surrey, said that we had done our experiments earlier for the Home Office, which suppressed them. And it just shows what tricks memories play. He hadn't, yes. I think he may have been on one jury, but that was all. Yes. And it's completely wrong. It wasn't funded by the Home Office at all. We published our first results. Um, people took it for what it was worth then. And the comparison he was suggesting was just non-existent. <laughs> Finally, we got some sort of grov uh, minor groveling apology for this mistake. But the newspaper was not at all keen to say that this man uh, was wrong. And we never discovered why. Memory. Yes. Memory can be so, so out of touch and you notice it in, my, in, in yourself as the years drift by. Um, you just remember things wrong.
you didn't do something that somebody else did, etc., etc. Or selectively. Yes. So that was the jury project, the LSE jury project. And, and I jointly with that. I would love to come back to that, Professor Cornish, when we discuss all your work okay. in another interview. I'd better go and read the old articles then. <laughs> Um, Professor Cornish, in 1990 you were appointed to a professorship here at Cambridge. I had understood that it was the Herschel Smith professorship. Not straight away. Not straight away, right. So could you describe the circumstances to this appointment uh, in, in the first instance? Well, it was to what was then called the 1973 professorship. Because that's how Cambridge labelled things that they put them label in other ways. And it had been first held once, one suspects, probably created for the great Professor Court Lipstein, oh. uh, who was outstanding on the faculty here because he was almost the only one who believed in the European communities and British membership. Therefore, really? yes. Uh, he, however, retired quite soon after that appointment, and Professor Milson, my old friend from the LSE, was appointed to it in his place, and then became a chair of legal history, in fact, because that was his great subject. Um, so, I mean, there was, a, there was a general advertisement for this chair when Professor Milson was about to retire, and uh, Somebody popped down to see if I was at all interested. I didn't actually know what, what was happening. But yes, uh, in the end I got it. And I was very pleased about that. As you say, I've been at the LSE for a very long time. And uh, something I perhaps was forgot to ask you about your time. While you were at LSE, you lived in London. Yes, certainly. Yes. And uh, so you had then to move up to Cambridge we did. in 1990. You were yes. quite happy to do that. We were. Our children had left home. Um, they were in their twenties, and they were off doing other things. Yeah. Um, so it was a good moment to move. Still, we were still energetic enough to, to take it in our stride. Yes. So yes, we came up here. We were very fortunate to find out. A house in Northwest Cambridge, which was, was had come back on the market because in 1990, some people hear, hearing this will remember there was a big slump in the property market, um, and uh, so there was this house for sale again, and it was delightful. We always always wanted to go and living there as long as we can. Wonderful, hmm. um, and when you came up here. Did you find that the whole situation, I mean, did you have to sort of change your modus operandi, your teaching methods, or was it all fairly similar to um, LSE, sort of the style and, and, and the, and the way? The style of what one did uh, didn't have to change greatly. I came as one of those old-fashioned experts on on the outside of the system as a professor from outside. And that's, that's quite difficult to, to make your niches in, in your 50s in a place like Cambridge with people who've been here man and boy. Yeah. Um, 
But you did have some experience um, of the Oxford Way. and That's true, yes. When I was a student there, I suppose the, the one distinction that was clear, since I was mostly teaching um, graduates in an LLM course, the, the great difference was that uh, Cambridge did not have a regular system of supervision for the subjects, whereas Oxford had done that, and some of their biggest hits with, with, with teaching had been in, in BCL subjects, the BCL being the equivalent then of the LLM, as it still is. Uh, were you, did you find that your research was assisted by being in Cambridge? Perhaps the fact that you didn't have to commute um, Life must have made life a lot easier in some ways. Uh, yes, yes. Cut out my half hour's bike ride each way, which was standard in London. Um, but were you otherwise able to continue with your research? In well, there had to be some adjustments, of course, because there were other people doing here, or great names, uh, teaching what I also taught in London. Um, and I just had to fit into that system. One isn't, as a professor then, one was very restricted in the number of hours you had to teach. 16 a year, I think, is still the figure, oh. amazingly. Yes. Uh, of course, by then people were going well over that, depending on what their interests were and the courses that they wanted to run. But it was certainly less, for professors, it was less intensive uh, contact, teaching contact, um, at, at that sort of level, uh, postgraduate work um, in London. That must have been helpful in one sense, Professor Cornish, helpful for free, freeing up your time in one sense. Yes, it, it, it does give you more time, certainly, and of course it's eight week terms and all that. Yes. Um, so, two things about that. I became the director of the LLM immediately because it wasn't a great job, it just had to be done. And we were then choosing from hundreds of applications the best 120 to 150 students each year. So that was interesting to do and a good way to get in. But the other thing I did immediately was to become the director of the Centre for European Legal Studies. The first director. The, the first director, partly because there remained a sceptical attitude amongst the leading public law scholars here towards membership of the EU, even 20 years after Britain had entered in 1973. Um, so I said, yes, I'd do it to get it, get it launched. And we did have such an event as in 1971, um, a visit from the Legal Affairs Committee of the European Parliament. They rather liked to be visiting attractive towns through half the whole <laughs> scope of the EU as it then was. Um, and they were okay to have and our best international con-European lawyers, younger people who are now very distinguished, um, spoke to them and they reacted to it. Um, and it, it seemed to be a good occasion that ended up with a campaign party in the Senate House. So they were, they were done proud. 
did you find that in those early days that there was that you felt some resistance to what you were doing in the faculty? Not very distinct. Uh, your, your, when you came up to Cambridge, it was the start really of the move. You had some time at the old schools, presumably, and it was more or less that time that the, the plans were beginning to. In oh well, they were well underway. Well underway. Yes. Were you for the new law building? The new law building. Yes. Were you involved in that at all, Professor Cornish? Mm, not significantly. Professor Tiley was the uh, member of the faculty who was the chair in my early years. Uh, short, short bit from Professor Baker, but then Professor Tiley took over. And he was good at giving drive to getting to the final stages of the plans, uh, hoping that all was all right. But as everybody knows, there was a famous row over noise within the building penetrating into all parts of the library and he was one of those who had to deal with this but Professor Spencer who succeeded him was even more determined not to let the architect and builders get away with their view that noise only travelled sideways oh, really? and eventually a glass wall had to be inserted into the building uh, and those in deepest in the Senate House might be able to tell you if they were ever ready to do so, who exactly paid for this war. Yes, I often wondered that. I wonder to this day, and I've known about it longer than you. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, the building was uh, an interesting new move. It's a pity in many ways that we couldn't have couldn't have had the university's administration move out of the centre of Cambridge um, and the buildings that, that make up the old schools so that we could have the whole of it instead of just having the library, which which was part of it. But in the deal was sold to Guise College, at which they, they did it up most beautifully. It's a building of the, of the 1830s. We lost all that. But the, the books were moved here, and there has been room enough for them. And had this kind of problems on the scale that many law schools have had throughout the United Kingdom since, with the great flood of new publications. And uh, the whole problem of digitization now, of course, is making law libraries somewhat superfluous. A very interesting. Landscape information. Yes. 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 Very challenging. Yes. Very interesting though. Yes. Yes. Um, now there's something else I'd like to tell you about the early 1990s and what I did when I came. Um, because I was prepared to take on the early years of the um, Centre for European Legal Studies up to the time when Professor Dashwood arrived as the first Professor of European Law, which must have been in 94, 95, I think. Um, one of the things which came up was very much of its era, the break and stemmed from the complete breakdown of communist rule in Central and East Europe. 
it was a suggestion from a man called Judge George Dobry that I help him in founding in Warsaw University a British Law Centre, the object of which would be to give courses to students who wanted to study them in, in his view, uh, particularly the common law uh, and its ways of approaching, approaching law, um, but which quickly, once we started to do this work, showed that knowing about the European communities as they were in those days, um, was very much an object in the minds of students who wanted, wanted to come and take the course. The course was taught in English at all times with lecturers from here and some other British universities and by a staff of uh, tutors who we kept in Warsaw and were therefore able to give British university style law courses in which it wasn't just lectures, but it was larger or smaller classes, everything from four members to 16 or something like that, in which students were expected to perform on their knowledge in discussion. So the, the idea of classes, which has become so common in, in British teaching, not on the sort of American scale where you have 60 students in the room and the lecturer looks at the photographs of them all and asks one of them to give an answer on a particular point, but much more intimate, much more calling for thinking beforehand right. and then work, working through to sensible answers about the doubts that are left always in legal matters. Um, after four or five years, we were able to turn this course in Warsaw into one which lasted over two years of law teaching. And from it, the students got um, option points, just as they would by taking options in a, a law degree here. Um, and at the end of it, they would be passed or failed and just distinguished as in the category of uh, best performers and good performers. So they were getting all this teaching and discussion. They were writing essays in English. One of the major objects was to make them familiar with the sort of English that lawyers taught, not on any, in relation to any particular system, but just a fluency in the language. We were very surprised when we first began how some of these students had good English already. Probably middle class in so far as there had been a middle class in the, um, in the communist era. Uh, but also some of them in the history of Poland through the 1980s had been able to work probably physical labor in West Europe bulb fields in Holland, vegetables in Norfolk and so forth. But some, some of the cleverest had got away to the beginnings of associations with the legal professions or other professions, of the media and so forth. 
and on the basis of that they were able to come and be well ahead in our teaching just through the, through the language skills. But it's always been a big success in, in Warsaw. We have 200 pupils going at any one time, taking two-year courses, so we take a new 100 each year. This is ongoing? Yes. yes. We've now celebrated our 21st uh, anniversary two years ago with a big, big dinner in the Marriott Hotel. It was a great success. And also now we have celebrated 20 years of a mooting competition, law mooting competition, um, which is open to teams from universities throughout the places where we teach and others if they're in Central or East Europe. We get fluctuations in who comes, but just to give you one example, we have had good teams from three universities from Georgia, from Tbilisi, and this, this year, month's time, the moot is going to be held in Tbilisi, uh, and they're providing us lots of money for this, this occasion. Don't always have lots of money in hand. And so somehow it runs. It runs with lots of fun in it, but also hard stretching because the judges, mostly who are young European lawyers from, for instance, the Commission or the European Court of Justice. But beyond that, some professors, some of them from East Europe now, and at the head of it all, a leading British figure for many years, it was Lord Slynn, Gordon Slynn of Hadley, who loved coming and mixing with these sorts of students. He and his wife came very regularly to Europe throughout the summer, throughout the spring and summer and autumn months. And then when he died, uh, Eleanor Sharp, Dr. Eleanor Sharpston, uh, took over the role of the chairman of the jury at this, this moving competition. And she can be really demanding of the mm -hmm. best students. It's wonderful to see her at work with them and how they stand up to her sometimes. <laughs> so that's a very successful enterprise as well and an experience they won't mostly get wherever they come from in these countries. The sort of experience that a mooting situation will give you about how you have to keep your head uh, in, in, a, in an adversarial context. Yes. So we're very that pleased with both those things. The University of Cambridge was prepared to grant us um, a, a diploma for all this work, as well as the, the diplomas that they get from their local university. Um, for several years after that, uh, 2000, the year 2000. Uh, and they owed us considerable amount because they had got themselves mixed in some Russian uh, digital university or broadcasting university um, using our materials without our permission um, and we had to rescue them from that because the students were just who had come in to this huge organization account weren't up to it and we had to mark all their papers and say they were hopeless. <laughs> so the Institute for Continuing Education, which had done this, certainly owed us something, and we were allowed to have 
certificates. But a few years later, their attitude hardened, I think, from, from the Central University in part. Because our students did not come to this residential university in person, we were not allowed to continue to give a certificate for our work. And we felt genuinely grieved by this. We felt we had achieved so much and that people in the university with a proper view objectively of what could be achieved by these very limited uh, means. Student, student, student pay, students pay fees, but of course they're far lower than anything you could imagine in Britain these days. Yes. And we felt we were hard done by people who would not understand us, determined not to. Yes. We have, however, survived without, without the Cambridge degree. Great. People, people like Richard Fenton and John Morgan still still go and teach them. Really? Um, and uh, that's just great. Another European project with which you were involved with, you were the chairman of the National Academies Policy Action Group Working Party on Intellectual Property. Yes. That was 93 to 94. Yes. Can you describe this work, Professor Paul? Well, first of all, well? NAPAG, as we call it, the National Association, um, is an affiliation of the leading uh, academies in the French sense, um, the Royal Society, the British Academy, the Academy of the Engineers, and the, the Academy for Medicine, all of which had one or other sort of interest in intellectual property, which is becoming more acute and which had to be managed within universities. Universities were beginning to set up technology transfer offices. And since the government wasn't then absolutely determined to run everything in educational management. They could get their hands on, if I may put it that way. Um, this was left to different universities to make their own policies. Some became very aggressive. University College, no, Imperial College, London, needs to be named because they really did try to insist uh, on ownership for their institution being the prime way in which exploitation of new technologies would take place. Um, where pro particular scientific projects had been put into universities by industry, for instance, industry was not prepared to be bullied in this fashion when they, their contribution was very considerable. It would be recognised in various ways in the contracts that they they pursued. Uh, but University College were, I'm sorry, Imperial College were uh, badly hit by this one-way, um, we'll tell you what to do approach. Many, many institutions, however, did have some kind of policy in which a university got a share in revenues that were coming in and at the same time probably got uh, the ability to control who you would choose 
chooses outside partners for exploitation and so forth. Oxford went quite a long way down that road. And the NAPAG report was about the various ways of doing these things, what assessments there had been so far of the uh, efficiency of technology transfer offices, um, which then lacked, lacked a good deal of momentum in many places, partly because salaries were too low for the offices. And it led on, I think it was quite widely read and has had quite a sustained influence, led on to patterns in different universities of how to deal with these problems, how to, how to turn ideas into exploitable uh, technologies, which will then start earning. In Cambridge, we had a big row about it. Uh, not least because computer scientists in the university uh, wished to keep the returns on their inventive ideas mainly for themselves, a portion for their research students, but absolutely nothing either in terms of revenue or control over where the exploitation would take place being left to the university to decide, except by contract with the inventors. Needless to say, the university thought there might be some other distribution, both of power and of money, through this. And without going into the details of a very wearisome process of uh, deciding what to do, first of all in the field of patents for inventions, and secondly in copy copyright of the material, which has been produced in ever greater quantities thanks to research assessment activities of the government. Um, we established a pragmatic uh, system in which patents for inventions had to be distinguished really from copyright rights. There's much less basic reason for saying it'll all belong to the university. Um, and so we hammered out our own relatively liberal pro-academic Version, version of what would happen. And that was a, became a policy, if I remember rightly, in 2002 or three, And has been, has been successfully operated now by Cambridge Enterprise under leadership that could understand the interests of both sides. But didn't go quite as far as some of the computer scientists would like in their own favour. Yeah. It was fascinating. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, wanted to include that in this, this session. Yes, it's with um, Chris Cornish. In 1998, you became president of your college. Oh, yes. College. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that. And um, Yes, it's not, a big, it's, it's, it's not a big deal. The president, who has office for between three and five years, in some colleges called vice-master, it's the same kind of function, um, is the senior fellow of a college for the time being, charged to make sure that the master or principal of the college keeps within 
the bounds of the charity that they are and within in the rules in their statutes and tries to reach compromises where there may be a division between the master and the rest of the college, the fellows. So that's the kind of formal role. It's a job that becomes a sort of social secretary to the, fa the fellows. It says where they can have their day studies and, and uh, some, for some of them accommodation. Uh, and uh, it just dribbles, dribbles off into all sorts of little little jobs like that. Interesting little byways. Some, yes. So. Occasional horrors. Yep, I'm sure. And in the over the years, have you seen much change at all? In the college? Yes. Hmm. I think the answer to that so far is not a great deal. The big push that is now going on in the university is in favour of advanced research students still, plus those who have got to the junior research fellowship stage. And I hear talk around the university of really establishing specific facilities for these high flyers. And these are specifically uh, academics who do not have long proper contracts, long-term contracts. Well, they don't have long-term contracts no. such as their university would give them. No. So it's They may have much, mostly these days much shorter contracts with colleges directly because the college wants to promote a particular yes. science or humanity. Yes. So it sounds though that it was an enjoyable time. Yes, it yes. was. Yes. I needed to go off on sabbatical leave before I got to retirement age, so I only did three years. I see. In 1997, you were made QC. Oh, yeah. Uh, any comments upon that? No, because it was an honorary QC. They, they are given a, a, a few or a couple each year to people essentially in the academic profession. Um, in recognition of their uh, prominent, prominent people, but no duties attached to it. You don't have to go. Even if you're practicing QC, no duties attached to it. Some rules regulate how you practice, um, but they don't require from Her Majesty a command of any kind. Oh. <laughs> That's just historical. See. So, uh, Professor Cornish, you retired in 2004. Yep. And I wondered what course your research had taken in the last 10 years. When I first came here, I undertook to pro Professor Baker that I would, as it were, direct um, a team of scholars to contribute to his great series, the Oxford. Uh, history of the laws of England. Oh, there it is. Yes. Um, for the 19th century, because that's been my big sphere of interest and where a number of scholars have drooped, mustn't say drifted, but pointed, pointed their whole emphasis as distinct from developments in the legal techniques up to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, roughly speaking. 
And so by 19, by 2010, we were in a position to produce three volumes uh, of some substantial size, as you will see from the one that is there, uh, to contribute to this series. It hasn't been possible to organize that they will come out in chronological order, as the appointed uh, authors have been able to finish their task, uh, they have come out. Uh, it's tremendously hard work because of the condensation you have to apply after you've discovered everything you can. And uh, all the volumes up to our period, which starts in 1820 and ends with the beginning of the First World War. Before that, each volume has only one author. Periods of 60 to 100 years depending on what was happening. And it's not surprising that some people become ill and aren't able to finish. Periods go blank because it's too daunting a task to do a single job on, on, on a long period unless you've been working at that period for 30, 40 years. So it's ongoing. The, the, the series is, yes. But it's now beginning to look as though it will all happen. And that's very good. Very yes. gratifying. Yes. So I selected five, five other contributors, and we all took aspects of the law differently and covered a great deal of it. But of course, one can always see corners where one should have gone and didn't because exhaustion had set in or we hadn't thought of it. Yes. There are fringes around legal history always, such matters as public finance, for instance, in the taxation system. In the 19th century, the law that would apply throughout the empire, and so on. Areas where it was difficult to go and we didn't do much if we did anything at all. But that's been a big project. Otherwise, I keep my textbooks going. Uh, I'm handing them over to others who are younger, where I decently can. Well, it does sound a very enjoyable retirement, if I may say. Yes, yes, it really. is. It and is. Um, I wonder if you could perhaps uh, summarise for us this, the inexorable rise of intellectual property rights in the digital age. Yes, some, some of the big problems are the result of di digitization, most certainly partly because, as you can see from any newspaper you open, at the top of digitization and the things you can do with it, there are huge sums of money to be made, Google and so forth. And much of those sort of competitive tangles hang on who has intellectual property rights that are relevant. The entanglements can be very complex technically and quite complex legally as well. Depends how well the original contracts licensing the protected material um, have been drawn, whether there are real problems there or not. But increasingly you see conferences advertised on the drafting of intellectual property licenses, because that's how so much of the business is actually done. 
The rest of the law is there to stop people who just imitate without asking permission, taking the inventions, taking copy, copies of written material and so on and on, getting your trademark rather too close to a well-known one. Um, written material has been a major sphere in which it is difficult to get successful recognition of intellectual property rights. So much, so much, so so many text, techniques have been available just to rip off behind the scene material, which in days of analog publishing uh, appeared in hard copy and so could be captured. But if you're out there with a catalog of literary works such as leading universities have contributed to, or if you're out there with great lists of musical works or copies of paintings, uh, which people may then want for illustration, advertising, or a thousand kind of uses. The opportunities for taking the material and it not being spotted and charged for are legion compared with what was happening even 10 years ago. So we are in a difficult world in which the intellectual property Owners have been put on trial and have often been slow to uh, adapt in some way that is, you know, gives, gives a technique for capturing this material. At the same time, there have been very greedy people around trying to capture huge territories of information much of it to do with the, the genetic character of humans and for the genetic characters of plants and animals, um, where there have been people at the beginning of science turning into innovation who have been only too ready to grab large areas of the science and say it is theirs uniquely and anybody who makes the same thing or makes things from it uh, <coughs> must pay a license fee to do so or might maybe stopped. I think I haven't yet explained who Herschel Smith was since I held the chair at his name but he is exactly such an inventor. He inv invented mainly in Cambridge, as I understand it, from being a student of Lord Todd, that medical, uh, chemical uh, scholar of great distinction. Herschel discovered the crucial structure of the uh, oral contraceptive. He didn't actually find the final product, but he found the combination beforehand. And out of that, he personally made a great deal of money from the patents that he got on it. So rich, but so decent, that the many millions that he made uh, in conjunction with the American uh, pharmaceutical company, John Wyeth, 
um, led him to huge endowments of chairs of research schools, um, both in the United States, notably at Harvard, but also in this country. Um, but that was not his only interest. Another of his areas of benefice was undoubtedly the patent system, protecting inventions such as he had done so well out of. And in the end, he gave this university the largest grant from an individual person it had ever received. I think it was about 40 million. Um, in the later 1990s, when things did go up and down, particularly in relation to digitization, 1998 was the first collapsing year of NASDAQ. Um, and he devoted his, his wealth to these good educational purposes. He was drawn into giving some, some of his endowments to intellectual property chairs uh, by his patent agent, who was very keen that that should happen as well as straight science might be by these gifts. And as I understand it, it's been money well placed and it includes my subject. And the endowment for the chair which you took out? Yes, yes. And you were the first incumbent of that chair? That's true, yes, 1995 I think yeah. it was. Yes. Mm. Thank you for reminding us of that, Professor Boyd. Yes, because I wanted to ask you, we sort of well, sidetracked somehow. I, I was so fascinated by what you were telling me about the your European involvement, so I forgot about that. But thank yes, you very yes. much for that. Well, um, recognising Herschel is quite a good point to climax. Well, before we conclude, um, you have received various honours. Um, Mm -hmm. And I wondered whether you have any comments thereon. For example, in 1997, Cambridge University gave you an LLD. Yes, that wasn't an honour. That was for my work. Ah. Oh. Uh, it's a proper LLD. I see. Submit, submitted material both in, in legal history yes. and in, in, in intellectual property. Oh. So I was very pleased to receive that. And in 1997, you became an honorary fellow at LSE. Yes, that follows on from my being there for 20 years. And I may say, having become quite a, a substantial academic administrator there, I was chairman of, uh, vice chairman of the appointments committee and then vice chairman of the academic board, which is the big democratic arena. Uh, organisation for running the school as a whole. Yes. yes. Do you still have strong links with LSE? Quite, but it's not possible to do everything. <laughs> In 98, you became a bencher at Gray's Inn. Yes, that was fine. And you... I really appreciated that. And I just visited as much as I'm able and do one, yes. or, one or two things each year with, with, with students who are trying to go to the bar. Yes. And then in 2013, 
he received the companion of the order of St. Michael and St. George. Yeah. I wonder if you could That was specifically for, for my work in Poland and elsewhere. Of course, that is the order that is, is really the charge of the foreign office and, and goes to government work supporting the, the government here in, in other places. Did you go down to London to receive this? Yes, Prince, Prince Charles gave me a nice proportion of his time on a very long day. Well, it sounds like a lovely occasion, Professor Gornish. Yes, it was. It was. Well, I think this is probably a, a good place to stop. Yes, sure. And in our next interview, I hope that we can cover your scholarly work. So all that remains is for me to thank you again very much for a, a wonderful account, for which I'm extremely grateful to be able to add to our archive. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for organising it all.